91.3 KBCS Community Radio, a listener-supported public service of Bellevue College. Check us out at kbcs.fm or subscribe to our podcast wherever you pick them up. Welcome to The Grit, your morning resource to go deeper into local and global current issues. I'm your host, Yuko Kadama. Today on The Grit, KBCS contributor and health chair of the NAACP Snohomish chapter, Kevin Henry, hosts a discussion on the effects of microaggressions on people of diverse backgrounds. Also some conversation on how to be the best support and ally in recognizing and calling out microaggressions in the workplace and in your personal life. Featured speakers are mental health counselors Antonio Ramos and Michael Swan. While I'll be asking Michael some questions that are somewhat specific to the African-American community and Antonia uh, questions that uh, are a little bit more specific to the Native American community, a lot of these answers to those questions are applicable in a general sense as well. But I really want to be able to uh, dig deeper into uh, the cultural histories of certain races of people in the country so that we can have that deeper understanding of um, history, but also how history relates to the present. So I wanted to start off with uh, Antonia uh, Ramos, and I wanted to give you maybe five or six minutes just to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about why this, uh, about your work, but also about why this particular topic is so important. Yeah, hi, thank you for inviting me. Um, like you said, my name is Antonia Ramos. Um, I am a member of the Tulalip Tribes. Um, and I I have my degree in art therapy specifically. Um, mental health has always been kind of like something very important to me. When I was a teenager, I used to work for the Tulalip Boys and Girls Club. And I just remember being a teenager and then like all of the other like little pre-tweens are just like, you know, learning to come to their own and we were like just figuring it out together and I I I was able to be a part of helping some of the kids who had some disciplinary actions kind of like find some comfort by going to the art room or something a little bit like less stimulating um and it got into a place where there's one specific um child and it got to a point where they would come up to me and they'd be like listen I'm having a bad day. Can we just skip the whole me getting in trouble going to the front desk? And can we just go to the art room? Um, and this became a habit where that this child would find me, would say that whenever they were having a difficult day, and we would go to somewhere quiet. And in these quiet places, we would kind of just connect over just talking, like what was going on, kind of like, you know, creating art. And I remember one specific time, um, I was like, all right, like, let's Let's have a little little challenge, shall we? Why don't we have a little drawing off um, and we'll create an image that we think represents us and you know, whoever can finish it fastest wins basically. And this child created a dragon and I was like, very fitting, I like it. You know, like snot nosed little like 17 year old me was like, that's fantastic. And this child looks at me and they're like, this, this dragon is me. And I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, I agree. You, know, you, got, you got a little fire to you. Um, and they're like, no, this is me because everyone thinks I'm some big, bad, scary person. And, you know, inside I'm just trying to protect what's mine. And I can't. They're like, my dad left, didn't say goodbye. And nobody told me why. And nobody's asked me if I'm okay. And I'm mad. I'm mad that I have to be big and scary. I'm mad that I have to be like angry because I can't be sad. Like, where is he? 
this little child looking at me, I'm 17. I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do. And I knew in that moment that my community needed something different because I didn't know where to send this kid. Um, I knew that we had therapists on our reservation, but I didn't know anyone specific, anyone that I knew that I could trust. Um, and I knew that this child didn't either because they were coming to me at 17 years old in the middle of an arts and crafts room at the Toilet Boys and Girls Club. And so I made the decision to leave my reservation, something that I didn't think I would do. I left my family and I went out into the world and I got my degree. And the entire time I thought of that little kid and I said, how do I make this easier for people like that kid? And so I worked really hard uh, at making mental health indigenous, taking in traditional practices. And that's why I specialize in art therapy. I use art as a way to help connect to the innate parts of individuals who used art as a way to communicate before colonization was even an idea, before communication needed to be a thing. There's signs um, historically all over in different you know, communities and like art as a way of telling a story. Um, and so that's what I specialize in. And the more that I kind of gotten into my career, the more I realized how these little tiny things that happen, these microaggressions that seem like nothing to people that do not have to experience them can in embody a lifetime of hurt for somebody, some child sitting in the middle of an arts and crafts room saying, why isn't anybody asking me if I'm okay? Why am I just supposed to be this person that the world tells me I'm supposed to be? I'm supposed to fit into this stereotype because I'm male, because I'm brown, because I'm whatever I am supposed to be in their eyes. And I'm not supposed to be hurt. I'm not supposed to be sad by these things. But in one comment, they dehumanize an entire existence. And so that's why I'm really passionate about this topic and about you know um, mental health and about making sure that it is available to everyone and anyone of any shape, color, size, however they identify. Um, and that's me. I'm Antonia, mental health therapist. I currently work at UTAB um, in the counseling center, and I do a lot of Indigenous outreach for the Indigenous students on campus, trying to help them have access to a mental health therapist that doesn't feel so far away from them. That's great. Thank you very much for that. I wanted to move over to Michael Swan. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your current work and, and how it relates to such an important topic as tonight's topic. Um, well, thank you for introducing me. Um, <clears throat> yeah, my name is Mike. I've been a um, counselor going on six years now, licensed for going on three years now. Uh, worked entirely in the King County area um, in my counseling career. I graduated in 2017 master's degree in rehabilitation counseling from Winston-Salem State University, historically black college in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Um, I do this work because it's something that allows me to connect with my community. Um, African-Americans are, are very, very underrepresented in Washington. And I see this as a chance to give back to the community. I see this as a chance to connect with my own past as well. Um, I've had situations growing up in Arizona where I've had folks absolutely uh, display microaggressions. I've had friends act that way towards me and just have 
very uh just denigrating comments and you know it's 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 really easy to get angry right it's really easy to get mad and in our anger it is valid right our anger can be valid but it's another thing to take action it's another thing to make the choice to advocate for people who are going through similar situations and understand that justice is something that isn't just a buzzword this is something that exists and as a counselor that's part of our that's part of our credence right to advocate to stand up for the the needs of people who need our assistance so i i take this job really seriously and i really respect what other counselors do i'm always open to new ideas um i don't claim to know everything about counseling and I definitely don't claim to be the one and only expert. I gladly refer and I gladly consult. Um, I'm a big fan of what UW does. They're actually one of the first people that I ever consulted with when I worked at DSC um, doing special pops co uh, consultations and I uh, really love what they do there. Um, one of my former supervisors actually works at UW, uh, Jim Lady. He's uh, an excellent supervisor, works in uh, uh, youth and patient. So really excited to be here and um, really excited to carry on the legacy of uh, people who have gone before me in, this, in the counseling profession. And, you know, one more thing I want to add to this. I was actually thinking about this today, uh, about uh, men of color in counseling. I think I can count on three fingers. In the last six years that I've worked in this field, the amount of men of color, licensed professionals that I've worked with personally in six years of working in the state of Washington. And that alone, to me, is the reason why I stay on. We need more people like me. Well, maybe not exactly like me, but people who understand what's going on. And um, I'm really glad to be here and really proud to give back to my community as best I can. So. Well, thanks so much for both of your introductions. And uh, I mean, what you said, Mike, about just the the, the shortage, I guess, or lack of counselors of color. It, I've worked for several agencies where people of color would come in and really need some mental health counseling and we couldn't accommodate them. And in mm -hmm. fact, what would happen is you'd have an agency where maybe there was a couple of counselors of color and they were backed up for months because yeah. because of the uh, of the. Uh, demand for it. So one of the things that I think is so important is removing that stigma that can exist in communities sometimes about mental health so that we can hopefully encourage people or, or kids even when they're in middle school or high school to pursue this and not be afraid of it. Yeah. Um, Antonia, I wanted you to, um, I had a question. I'm going to start off with questioning you here first. And it had to do with the types of micro, first of all, maybe you could define microaggression just in your own terms, and then how, give us examples of microaggressions that relate to uh, Native Americans or indigenous people. I know that personally, one thing that I've always gotten riled up about, but I'd like more insight on are mascots, sports mascots. And I remember that I refused to cheer for teams <laughs> from Atlanta, Kansas City, and Cleveland up until recently, because I just said, wow, you know, I mean, it's like so much of history has been ignored around uh, indigenous people, Native Americans. And yet this is what I see when I turn on the TV. So maybe you could talk about um, defining microaggressions and how they apply to your to your community. 
Yeah, I mean, microaggressions is like a term that's used um, for our like daily verbal and behavior um, or things that we do that can communicate hostility, um, degradation, or negative prejudice, slights, or insults towards a specific group, specifically like minority groups. Um, I do know that this term was coined for um, uh, African-American in the Black community that were experiencing these, like, these prejudiced acts um, early on. And then um, I can't remember who, um, who did coin the term and helped us become familiar with it. But over time, they realized that there's a lot of microaggressions that happens in many marginalized communities, such as the disabled community, people of color, um, and like other similar groups that kind of fall into that category, people who identify um, differently than I guess like um, what society has identified as the standard norm. Um, and so these are just kind of like the follow throughs of the stereotypes that people end up getting placed into. Um, and I think it's really interesting um, to be asked about kind of mascots, um, specifically because this is just like a portion of the microaggressions that I have experienced kind of in um, the indigenous community, what I've seen, it kind of is just something that uh, it's a part of the bigger whole that indigenous peoples experience. Um, I cannot remember where or who said it, but I know that there was a quote that I read when I was early on in my studies. Um, and it talked a lot about how indigenous peoples are not seen as actual people. They are not very, they're not real. And what I mean by this is that a lot of the quotes or kind of references to indigenous people will usually have a picture that's black and white, very old, very distant. There's a lot of references to things that aren't real, like Pocahontas, these mascots, right? These are things that, you know, dehumanize an entire race. And this quote continues to say, until we are seen as actual people, nothing can be done. And these microaggressions are just kind of the the continuation of that. Um, and so um, some of the things that I kind of thought of is that, um, you know, like specifically taking the mascot as a an example, mascots that kind of embody indigenous character, um, specifically like Native American indigenous peoples is, is almost like a joke, right? There's, there's a lot of flamboyant kind of like cartoonized just, detached part that comes in from these things and and a lot of them have really kind of fun little gestures that come along with them um I know like uh back home they have like the little like little tomahawk and people would like do little signs and it just kind of makes things not real it makes indigenous people not real um and it makes comments like oh like uh, a lot of um my friends growing up would hear constantly like oh you're just like my little Pocahontas takes away their identity, right? Like, oh, you look just like that mascot from that football team takes away their identity. Um, it's, it's really hard to continue to be an individual person when society doesn't let you be an individual person by these slight little things that seem very minimal to them. But it takes everything away from that person who's been struggling to just be themselves, right? In an instant, people will not see the fact that I've 
done a lot of work to become a therapist, that I do a lot of work in my community, that I am constantly striving to become um, something, anything for that little child that first got me into this career. And they'll just be like, oh, so do you get ready in a teepee? And I'm like, oh, that's, that's, an, that's an interesting way to greet me. Hello. Hi. Um, wow. and, so I think that's kind of like when we talk about like mascots, when we talk about these things, I think it's really important to also talk about the other things. Like how often are we watching, you know, people dress up as indigenous people? How often are we referring to indigenous people um, as Pocahontas, as some cartoon version of them that we've seen? Um, and how often do we let that take away their actual identity of who they are, what they've done to kind of just exist and be a person? And what type of effect can that have on an individual in terms of their mental health or just even, I don't know, their self-image? Yeah, I think that a better answer than than what I could probably give is just to ask a question, right? Like what happens to an individual when they um, are stripped of their identity? What happens to an individual's mental health when they experience shame? What happens to an individual's mental health when they are criticized, belittled, and dehumanized? What happens when they are made to feel lazy, when they're made to feel less than? All of these things kind of get wrapped up into the term microaggression. Everything that we experience through all of those things get wrapped up into microaggression. And to answer that question, individuals who experience those things experience severe depression, severe anxiety. Some can experience um, multiple avenues of abuse, substance abuse. Um, a lot of different disorders come from that and a lot, a lot of it can sometimes lead to suicidal ideation and sometimes even just suicidal attempts that become successful. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk about yeah. and a lot of participation and I guess I would call it allyism in terms of, and it's not, it's usually tends to be white allies, not always, but I've talked with a lot of those groups and I always try and bring in speakers really, especially if I'm, if they're asking questions about a culture that's not mine or a racial group. But do you have advice for people who say, hey, you know, I, I understand that, you know, history has has been rotten. These things have happened. These things are still happening. What can I do to educate people? Or I want to put on an event. Who should I how should I start? Because I'd like to give them some sense of guidance. And I think that, uh, you know, sometimes you're well intentioned. But if you don't have that knowledge, you don't talk to the right people, you can wind up. <laughs> you know, having a disaster on your hands sometimes, but any advice for those people? Oh, definitely. Um, I think the four main things that I like to share with people who are experiencing microaggressions and or perpetrating microaggressions. I would like to start off though, that all of us have biases and all of us can perpetrate microaggressions um, just because um, our skin color may be different or we may be part of a marginalized group does not take away the ability for us to microaggress another person. Um, and so I think all of us can benefit from, um, the first thing that I like to recommend is just pause, take a breath what you're about to say, what you're about to do, is it going to add to the situation to the person? Is it going to be something that would be common across the board, right? If if it's not, that is okay. There is a quote that um, says, your first thought is society. Your second thought is you. 
And so when we pause and we just take a minute, it allows us to be present. Is this something that we would want to say? Is this something that we would want to portray? And if it's not, that's okay. We just don't say it and we kind of move on. Um, kind of a follow up with that, like the second thing that I like to encourage people is don't single out one person. Um, if you are interested in understanding more about a, a culture, a community, um, or any kind of population, um, maybe like not seek out the one person that you know from that community. Um, just because you have proximity to them does not obligate them to become your teachers, does not obligate them to educate you. Um, and for this, I do recommend a lot of things. There's a lot of uh, social media creators who speak on different social um, or different communities or different um, ethnic problems that I think would be far better, better use of our time. Um, my friend one time said, um, is this a question that you can Google? So rather than seeking out the one person in the room who aligns with the community that you would like to know more about, can you Google it? Can you find a creator to help you first understand and create empathy before singling out that one person? And the third thing that I like to point out is the singling out of one person. A lot of times our microaggressions are not things that we knowingly do. Um, so there might be one person that we're like, oh, shoot, we should probably make sure that they're comfortable. And you're constantly going and saying like, hey, are you comfortable if we talk about this? Um, and then the question gets asked, like, have you done that for everyone? Or did you specifically do this because I'm different? That microaggression is really, really important because it is not out of a place of malice or harm. You are literally trying to make somebody feel comfortable. But in doing so, you told them that they were different than the rest of the group. Um, and the last thing that I like to um, encourage people to do is make it personal, right? When we are about to do something, we're about to experience something, share something, any of these things, would we want somebody that we truly care about to experience that? If we we're going to make a comment to somebody, would we want our child to hear that comment? If we are about to present something, would we want our mother to hear things like that said to them? Um, just make it personal and, and kind of, I think that really does cultivate the, um, empathetic environment that can help us kind of overcome these microaggressions and overcome our continuation to single out individuals for either for us to become, educate ourselves or for us to, um, become familiar with an area. Uh, and you ask the question, how do we find people to kind of help us? Um, one, like I said, social media is a really good place for us to kind of get our footing in. And another thing is just create genuine relationships with people. When we genuinely want to get to know an individual, like, and we want to get to know how to assist, um, I think that's going to make a difference than if we're doing it because we feel obligated or because it's like part of our to-do list. Those were all great. And I've been fortunate even working at uh, VOAWW to to have relationships and cultivate relationships with coworkers who are from much different backgrounds than my own. And I feel like it's a gift really that, that I'm receiving. Thank you very much for that. I wanted to move over to Michael Swan, your turn. And uh, I have kind of the same series of questions, but I guess I'm also thinking in the last three or four years, with the murder of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, a lot of um, 
how can I put it, a lot of maybe pre-existing racism that was always kind of simmering below the surface uh, came bubbling up. And then, you know, people were unfriending each other on Facebook and saying, wow, I had no idea that Mike felt that way about black people or whatever. <laughs> so I'm just I'm just wondering, um, you know, what's your you know, how do you define microaggressions? And maybe just give me some examples of how you've seen that play out in your personal life, but also as a counselor talking with uh, uh, some of your clients. Well, uh, I, I first off, thanks for thanks for asking the question. Um, now, I've done I've done a seminar on this before with you, and um, every time we we have this topic, I always try to do as much research as I can because the last thing we need is someone who's not educated on this topic from a clinical perspective as well as a personal perspective. So there's two different perspectives, and oftentimes uh, they don't align. But one thing that I'm I'm looking at in my research here, uh, when we talk about microaggressions themselves. We talk about subtle denigrating messages towards a particular group, right? And this term was coined by Chester Pierce in 1978. So this isn't a this isn't a, a, a modern day topic. This isn't something that just showed up on TikTok last week. This has been around for almost uh, uh, 45 years. You know, this is this is something that's been going on and it has been coined, at least put in existence in the last 45 years and defined. We know it's been going on well before that. Um, so we talk about covert and subtle uh, racial remarks that maybe the person who did them wasn't really even intending to, you know, to, to be uh, negative towards someone or to speak out on someone's stereotype in a negative manner, or even a positive manner, right? So there are people out there like, for example, uh, with Asian population, the, the stereotype of, oh, Asians are good at math and things like that. Oh, how do you get to be so good at math? That is, a po- that is considered a, a positive stereotype, but it's still a stereotype, right? They're good at math because they studied and they worked hard. It does not, it's not necessarily because of their race, so we have to be able to be mindful of, of stereotypes and how microaggressions are kind of the windows into that stereotype. Uh, I've heard this. Uh, uh, there's plenty of TED talks on microaggressions. Uh, they talk about um, death by a thousand cuts, right? Now, one or two may not seem like a big deal, but when you have to deal with this on a daily basis or a regular basis. Music and ideas. This is KBCS, a broadcasting service of Bellevue College. Careers start here. Earn a degree or certificate local employers want. Some can be completed with less than 30 credits, like the 25 credit accounting preparation certificate. Check out bellevuecollege.edu slash start here. This is The Grit on 91.3 KBCS Community Radio since 1973. As a clinician of color, I'll often have white clients that will question my credentials, question my methodology, question my, 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 my mode, uh, you know, and I'm a very eccentric, 
I have a very eccentric style, meaning that I don't stick to one style. I, I use multiple styles in my counseling. And a lot of, and, and a lot of counselor uh, clients that are white, they might question that. They might question, oh, where did you get, what is an HBCU? I get that a lot too. What is it? What is a historically black college? You know, historically black college was complete, was, was created because they weren't letting us into the PWIs. They created it for us so we could have a chance at education. And a lot of people, they don't really understand what that is. So they don't understand what the, the merits of HBCUs are. They don't understand the merits of affirmative action. And when people start to question things like this, this creates what we call colorblind racism, right? And this is something that is definitely uh, well in the news and well documented nowadays. I mean, they're trying to get rid of affirmative action um, for the most part. And I think that is definitely something that we have to look at um, and definitely something that affects the, the the total picture of what, you know, what the system looks like moving forward. And I think microaggressions are just a window into that. It's death by a thousand cuts. If I'm having a conversation with someone and they allude to some sort of either negative or positive stereotype, and they do it in a way that is meant to be humorous or meant to be funny. I mean, there's all these meme pages and things like that. I was actually talking about this with someone earlier, uh, the term uh, uh, basketball people. This is something that I'm seeing on Instagram a lot. And they're using that to describe Black people. And I'm like, what do you mean by basketball people? You know, uh, there's a guy on Instagram, his, his catchphrase is, what do you mean by that? Right. And then I'm constantly questioning that and thinking, what, what do you mean by basketball people? And it's such a subtle thing that you would not pick up. And yet they're leaving it right out there for you to see. And that is an example of a modern microaggression that we're seeing on a regular basis, acting out on the internet uh, all the time. So I, I think that for me, microaggressions is an indicator of where someone is on recognizing and appreciating someone's culture, right? If you're, if you are so in this mode of not understanding when something is affecting someone in a negative manner, when some something is, is attacking someone's character, their culture, their history, then that needs to be addressed. That needs to be spoken out on. And, um, you know, I think the problem is if we don't speak out on this, we get the situations on the internet. We get all these videos. We get the Karen situations, you know, <laughs> people calling 911, you know, just because a black man is walking their dog and things like that in Central Park and things like that. You know, we get things like that. And, and that's what leads to even more significant conflict. So to answer your question, yes, I have seen it in my personal and professional life. I've had people literally drive down the street. And this is what they call, uh, they call it a, a, a micro assault where someone uses blatant racial epithets. Mm -hmm. And I've had that happen to me in, in high school. I was going to school and a guy drove by in a truck and he called me the N-word, just right out and out, just yelled it out. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to school with that. And, you know, freshman year, I'm 36. That was 21 years ago. Mm -hmm. I still remember that. Well, and that's I what like, I wanted to ask you, you know? because I asked uh, yeah. Antonio that as well, is the effects, the cumulative effects oh, yeah. that it has on people. Because, you know, you were talking about the whole mm -hmm. thing with the credentials, for instance. And I've heard from a lot of black people in particular about the old saying of you have to be twice as good. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. it's like you're constantly having to prove yourself or validate yeah. yourself. 
because, well, you went to uh, a certain college. Yeah. Or I remember a case one time where there was a white family. I don't know if it was in Seattle or somewhere else, but mm-hmm. they didn't want their kid to attend a school named after Dr. Martin Luther King. It was like Martin Luther King Middle School or whatever it was, because mm-hmm. that later on wouldn't look as good on college transcripts or something or applying for college is what it was. So there's all these little things. I mean, I think of some of the dismissiveness of even Confederate statues, things like that, you know, is that what I tell people is that, look, you know, you you can interpret a statue any way you want, but Mm -hmm. different people interpret statues in different ways because they represent different things. So for me personally, somebody says, I always correct people when they say our founding fathers, because they were not my found my ancestors founding fathers. They were they were slave owners for my ancestors. So that's how I view them. That tag will always be with George Washington, Jefferson, all of that. But we constantly get that rammed down our throats, I think, sometimes. Yeah. And had I not gone to an HBCU for my undergrad and grad school, I would have never known that George Washington owned 317 slaves. Mm -hmm. Never would have known that. Never would have known that they don't teach that in the PWIs unless you study uh, African-American history specifically. And every class that I took in HBCU had some understanding of some some reckoning and and and, and being able to connect to the real history. Right. Mm-hmm. I would have never known about the Watts riots had I not gone to Winston-Salem State. I would have mm-hmm. never known about Cointelpro or Huey, uh, Huey Newton from the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have known that, you know, our one of our teachers was the head of the Black Panther Party in Winston-Salem. I would have never known any of that stuff. Well, and some of that's regional. And I think that yeah. even for, for all of us, white, black, all different backgrounds, I knew about Huey Newton and the Watts riots because I grew up in Los Angeles. So the Watts riots were about 20 miles from my house. You know, I was yeah. a little kid, but I, I distinctly remember them. So I think that, you know, we had mentioned, both of you had mentioned unintentionally committing microaggressions and -hmm. it's just like i've seen um, people get in trouble for associating black people with fried chicken and watermelon now in some cases now i know what that is to me Mm -hmm. i go "Uh oh you know but i knew some people that literally there were white folks from arkansas and that's what they ate so they didn't they said something about come on over to some they said this is some black people come on over the house and have some watermelon and fried chicken and and all the eyebrows went up and there was a problem and they well that's what we eat so i think that my point in saying this is that what advice do you give to people and i asked antonio this as well it's like i want to be an ally i don't want to say the wrong thing i want to say the right thing i want i want to be part of race and social justice What's your advice to them? Well, this is a good question. And I actually had this as a conversation, uh, a clinical conversation. First off, education. You know, there's plenty of books out there that and and groups out there like NAACP that can allow us to raise the question of what is discrimination? How do we combat it? Right. One of my favorite books that I always recommend to um, clients who are trying to, especially clients who are in interracial relationships and the topic of race comes up because that often does happen in interracial relationships. Uh, the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, one mm. of my favorite books, uh, highly recommend that book. I also recommend, uh, like I said before, just social advocacy, right? We want to be able to step up 
and acknowledge where the discrimination is and being able to have a conversation on that is something that can give us perspective, right? And and after the George Floyd murders in 2020, I was actually inspired to join NAACP. I was um, uh, part of NAACP King County for uh, almost three years. I was the he- uh, health committee chair and we did a lot of great work. And I learned a lot about uh, King County and what the community needs. Um, I'm currently a part of South King Emotional Wellness League, uh, a uh, organization that helps provide free uh, mental health resources for folks in South King County and pretty much all over Washington. And uh, it's really woken me up to understanding what the community's needs are and how to reach out. So community activism, education, those are the first two places I would go. Um, and, and, and like Antonio said, you know, asking questions to your family and friends, not being afraid to speak up when you notice something that doesn't feel right. You know, if, if it makes you feel now, one of the big words that the kids are saying nowadays is cringe, right? If you get that cringe, right. If you're feeling that cringe, it's okay to speak up and say, Hey, what, what, just like Drewski said, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Right. What, what, what do you mean by that? What, what can you do to clarify, right? In DBT, they talk about the concept of mindful attention. And what that means is when we notice something is off and we need clarity, we take the time to ask, hey, I notice this, this, and this. What can you tell me about that, right? We wanna be able to raise those questions. And that's something that we do to help prevent uh, uh, increase in conflict. That's what we do to to prevent uh, unnecessarily violence unnecessary conflict. We want to be able to speak up and speak out and advocate for positive social change in our communities. So that's where I would start. Education, uh, advocacy, and not being afraid to speak up when you feel something is not right. When you feel something is not, it goes against your values. What you mean by, you know, what we mean by just accepting other people as they are. Um, you know, just like the the model in Aberdeen, come as you are, right? There's also a Nirvana song about that, come as you are, right? Mm-hmm. If it goes against our values and we sense that, it's okay to speak up and and, and advocate. We want to give ourselves that permission to make that happen. Antonia, know? I wanted to ask you, because both of you have mentioned education as something that's key. And I know there's a movie out now um, uh, with Robert De Niro and Lily Gladstone, who's who's a, actually went to Mount Lake Terrace High School, I think. And so much Native American history has been ignored. Uh, I've learned more in the last three years than all my years in high school and college, just about the boarding schools and the Trail of Tears and all of that. And there seems to be this new, I don't know, attention or or push to get it out um, into the public eye so people can learn about history. And this is also there to counteract efforts, especially from certain states, I won't mention, to repress history and even ban books. So what's your feeling about the movies and and uh, this kind of new push to try and educate people about the history as well as the present when it comes to Native American culture? I think this is... Um a little bit heavier of a question than I think we realize, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's totally fine. Because I think I have had many different conversations with many different, you know, people from my community, um, Native American um, individuals that I've met like along my way. And we all kind of sometimes tend to feel differently. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I will speak for myself when I say I, I think it's necessary because like Michael had mentioned, if he had not been in a place to hear about his history, there might be situations and kind of parts of it he would not understand. And I think that has been as a whole where we have been with Indigenous history. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with different people and they have absolutely no idea. I remember when um, the pipeline was going through and having a conversation with one of my roommates while I was in college. And they're like, why is it such a big deal? We need it. And I'm like, we need, why is it a big deal? This isn't, this is a home. This is land. This is something that is valued and treasured by people who have been the caretaker of this land for far longer than anybody knows far longer than I can even understand. And I I'm part of that lineage. These things are powerful and important. And so with things of like the children of the flower moon and things of like, you know, the boarding schools and these kind of uncomfortable situations being brought back up into society, I think it is necessary to start, though it is kind of not always done in the most beautiful and elegant ways. And we're still kind of finding our footing. I, I appreciate that it is starting the conversation. I appreciate that I have friends who are finally like, look at me and they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, man, that's why it's hard. What are you talking about? I know Antonio says, you know, none of us were at the right space to feel racism or microaggression. You have every right to take up space. And again, I mean, for me, that goes back to kind of normalizing things. You know, it's like this. I've, I've been places where it's a check the box situation. You know, we have our annual DEI mandatory training for a half day and then they check the box and they don't even discuss it for another year. And while and, and in the meantime, you have this these simmering examples of microaggressions and racial slurs. And then unfortunately it takes winding up in court and shelling out several million dollars. And then finally they decide to have a full-time DEI program when it's been like a silent infection in their company or their business or corporation for a long time. So, so being very proactive is, is so important, just like your health, just like your mental health. Do you want to wait until your blood pressure is has skyrocketed and your your arteries are all clogged or do you want to start doing things now to make sure that you're healthy um any other advice that um i'll go with antonio first um in terms of your i, I guess i'm in looking ahead are you optimistic are you pessimistic are you feeling like okay in order to make sure that we keep pushing the needle forward what do we have to do um, I, I definitely lean more towards optimism because of the breed of people we have. And I'll share an example of a friend while I was in, um, college, um, my friend Edith identifies as a black woman. Um, and I were like one of like, th like two of three people who were of color in this program, which is totally fine. That happens right when you go to, you know, big universities, um, and I remember there was something in the slide and it was, it didn't sit right with any of us. And like, so we both looked at each other and we're like, what? And so she was, she, she said, that slide is racist. It offends me. 
And if you are going to continue to teach this course and attempt to teach that topic, I recommend that you alter that slide. Mm. And then the instructor was like, well, what do you mean? Like, why, like, can you tell me what's racist about this slide? What can I do differently? Like, he's like, I want to be like, I want to make sure that this is appropriate and like, you know, tasteful and like available for everyone to feel comfortable. And she simply said, it is not my job to educate you. I am telling you, I am uncomfortable as a black woman sitting in this class, looking at that slide. Mm -hmm. And if you wish to have me continue to pay attention, I encourage you to do some reflecting. And that is all she said. Mm -hmm. And so when I say take up space, we are all going to find our place and what that means on a personal level in like, uh, like in our families, like you talked about uh, at a larger level, like Edith standing up in class and, and demanding the fact that she's not anybody's teacher. She's going to let you know how she feels and she's going to let you know exactly what it was that made her feel uncomfortable but she's, it's not her job. She decided that that was no longer her job. And then we'll have people who love to take on that opportunity to teach and educate. Um, and so I am very optimistic because there are so many more stories like that, where individuals are taking up space, where individuals are saying things, where individuals like Priscilla sharing that here, that wasn't a small feat. I mean, a small task. That was a large feat, right? That was something that takes a lot of courage to even bring up. Because what do you do when you feel hopeless? What do you do when you're watching things happen? What do you do when your own identity is triggered? And you have people who say, I will no longer sit back and wait. And I think it's a beautiful blend of individuals finding their voice, finding their courage and standing up, even if it's something as small as 15 people in the middle of a grad program. Mm -hmm. Edith made a difference on me. And I've shared that story in a lot of my groups that I've had. And she's made a heck of a lot of difference in multiple, like, African-American and Black identifying individuals who join my group. Mm -hmm. So like so often we hear these things and how we have to just take it. And well, like, yeah, you have to take it and because people aren't ready and you have to show them grace, which is mm -hmm. kind of mind boggling. Hey, Michael, so, so what are you thinking about? Thank you, Antonia. What are you thinking about moving forward? Because I know sometimes I've attended workshops or people have attended workshops and gotten a lot of information to the point where, you know, their head's ready to explode and, and it's all good information, but now they want to be able to do something with it. And one thing I've suggested, because when I, I worked at um, Sound Mental Health for a couple of years and I was working with counselors there as well, and this was right, right after George Floyd got murdered. So we had a lot of Black Lives Matter protest uh, going on. You know, some of it became you know, a little out of control here and there, but there was a lot of tension in the streets and there were a lot of clients or people who were coming into the agency who were black, who were feeling, I mean, some black males in particular were having some issues just being around law enforcement, for instance. And so we had a lot of counselors who said, I want to do something. But one told me, I remember, she said, well, I don't feel comfortable out marching in the streets, you know, you know, doing the whole thing uh, yeah. with the with the bullhorn and all that. But I said, there are so many other ways. And you've mentioned some great ways that people can educate themselves, call things out, um, find space for voices. But I've even suggested that at Christmas time or during the holidays, when you're buying gifts, buy gifts that are educational i mean instead of buying somebody a plant or yeah. you know a set of trays or whatever why don't you they have black history flashcards, for instance 
Yeah, you, yeah. Michael, do you have some other suggestions for people? So last year, me and my wife, um, we went to Bellingham uh, to kind of give our dogs a break from the fireworks because they're very sensitive to the fireworks. And one of the things that I wanted to do was research uh, because my uh, my grandmother who passed away at, uh, when she was 51 in like 1979, she passed mm-hmm. away a long time ago. She was a uh, Cherokee uh, Native American. So one thing I wanted to do was research some of the local tribes in the area. I've worked with folks um, in, in uh, when I worked at Kitsap, I worked with folks who were uh, part of uh, local Native tribes and uh, Native American tribes. And um, so I did some research on the Native American tribes that are uh, uh, indigenous tribes that are present in Bellingham. We did some research on the Lumi tribe. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Again, you know, this is the American education system at its best. <laughs> but um uh, and what I did was I went to the store and I bought, uh, I tried to buy some books on and research uh, the Lumi tribe and uh, they didn't have any specific books. And I was kind of upset by that. But what they did have was a book on Native American artwork. And that was for uh, all the tribes in Washington. So basically what I did was I gave that to my wife as a gift and we were able to kind of mm. look into that. And use that as as a way to kind of guide ourselves in Bellingham and try to find a connection to uh, indigenous population in in, in Washington. And I, and I think that would be a great gift to have to understand the story, understand the history of indigenous tribes in Washington. As an example, now as far as African American research is concerned, and just kind of connecting with the African American community. Um, there is a community in uh, the Central District in Washington called Africa Town. I had the privilege of going there and doing some grief counseling last year. There had been a shooting in that area, and I was able to, um, they invited me to go and uh, uh, do some grief counseling and talk to the people who had been affected by that situation. Now, not, obviously, not everybody can do something like that, but it would be, I think, a good thing to think about as far as connecting to other people. How do I invest in these communities, right? What do I do to invest my time, invest my energy? Maybe I just go down to the community and get a haircut and just Mm. listen to the history, right? Mm. Even if you do something like that and offer that as a gift, I think that's a good way to connect to African-American community uh, rather than, you know, just going to a movie at Alderwood Mall or something like that. I think that would be a good alternative activity to participate in and actually invest into that community because I think that that goes a longer way than just kind of, you know, you know, otherwise. So that would be my recommendation. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because another thing I suggest to people is, and I think, we, you know, we all live in our own little bubbles. I mean, I do. I go to the same Safeway. I get, you know, I pump my gas at the same Chevron. And we kind of, you know, it's a comfort zone that yeah. that we fall into that I think it's just human nature. But I think that empathy can also come out by putting yourself in a situation that is different, that's new, and like where maybe you're the minority. Well, I wanted to start with Antonia for a second, because you, you know, you started off by talking about your, your art therapy and using art as a way for people to get in touch with inner emotions. What advice, and I'll start with you, uh, Antonia, and then over to Michael, for clients that come in that are suffering from that a thousand cuts. And they're saying, I don't know, my self-esteem is this, and I don't, you know, I'm feeling anxious. 
Are there art therapies one tool? Are there other things that you do, uh, Antonia, when you're working with some of the, your clients? Um, I think that this question is also one of, I don't, I think the more that we kind of get into these topics, yeah. we realize that it's really hard to kind of give a general right. response Sure. Um, because I've had many clients come in with like, okay. what do I do with this? Right. How do I do it? And each one is kind of different. One of the things that I do definitely recommend is in that I, I, I try to assist them on their journey is reaffirming their own identi identity acknowledging and accepting the parts of them that they they've honestly had to to almost kill off in order to survive in the world and the atmosphere and the, the spaces that they take up um one of the huge things that i do in my work is the is this process of reclaiming reclaiming what was taken what was lost i have a specific client that i used to work with um back in florida and they were like, you know what, my progressions aren't even that bad. It's fine. I don't mind. And after some time, they came to me and they're like, you know, I do mind. I just don't have the space to mind. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to me when I actually acknowledge that it it matters? And for the first time, they put themselves first. And for the first time, they had the option to even say, what can I take back that was taken from me through racism, through microaggression, through the loss of my identity, through the loss of the opportunity to be outspoken and heard? So that's one thing that I do recommend is, I recommend is what can you reclaim? What can you accept? What can you acknowledge? What part of you has just been kind of lingering, waiting to be heard, waiting to be seen? Mike, what are your feelings about, you know, if somebody comes to you, a client or just a friend or whatever, and says, hey, you know, I'm really feeling kind of beaten down or I thought it was OK, but I realized that it wasn't the way I've been treated. Well, I mean, there's a lot of layers to that. I mean, you know, there's only so much I can do with yeah. a friend that I can say as a therapist because you cannot be a counselor to your friends. Um, but I am there to listen. I am there to provide empathy. You don't need a degree to do that. You don't have, you don't need a degree to listen and use active listening skills, right? You know, you don't, you don't need that. You don't, you don't need a degree to validate someone's emotions and to sit with them in their pain, right? Now, obviously that a counselor is someone who does that. And I have recommended uh, friends go see counseling, but you don't need a degree to do that. And that's definitely something that I do. Now, for me, uh, someone who talks to people, you know, eight hours a day. Plus when I'm done talking, I, I, and I'm done working. I, I, I generally don't talk to people. Like what I like to do when I get off work is go do jujitsu and train and be on the mats. And that's, and that's how I talk. I talk with physical, uh, you know, physical discussion. And, um, but you know, every now and then I will have that conversation. Like what, what does this injustice looks like to me? And, and, I'm always the one to kind of advocate, hey, you have a right to stand up for yourself. You have a right to, you know, speak your mind. Now, right now, um, I'm dealing with a personal family issue. Um, I have a brother who is in jail right now. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely hard for me because it's like, I think about all the work that I've done in nursing and counseling over the years. And then I think about his struggle right now, his struggle to understand what's right what he needs to go through to get out of the situation that he's in. And it's definitely conflicting, but at the same time, it's like, you know what, 
we have to be able to advocate not only for the rights of the people who are, you know, victims. We also have to ag advocate for the people who maybe they're not the victims. Everybody has a right to have their rights advocated for. And I don't know the, the details of my brother's incarceration right now, but I can tell you right now that, you know, it's definitely something online. What is the just response? And I think that's a question that we ask ourselves whenever there's something that's ambiguous, like someone going to jail and things like that. So definitely something to keep in mind um, for me, at least, and, and how I interact with people. What is the what is the most fair response that I give someone in, in their struggle that I can give them um, at the time? And, and is there a need to pass this along to someone who maybe be able to get be able to give them a more nuanced response? Mm -hmm. So that's something to think about there. So, well, I love what you said about passing on resources as well, because yeah. I think that sometimes I've seen people feel like they don't feel adequate or feel competent or confident enough to address something that might be a little bit out of their comfort zone or something they don't know about, but they can still play a role. They can still say, Hey, you know, I don't know how to answer that question. I can't even begin to think what you're experiencing, but you yeah. know, here's, here's a group that you can, you can join. Here's a, I mean, there's movie groups, there's meetups, there's yeah. even when I was locked down, like everybody else for a couple of years, I met so many people online, online groups on Facebook. And even in yeah. this region, there's change the narrative. Granite Falls is one group on Facebook. There's another group, the Edmonds Action Coalition. There's the North Shore uh, group as well. There's uh, Rise Up Lake Forest Park, which sounds like a science fiction movie. But <laughs> there are people out there. There, there's even a, a website, and this is a this is a national group of I think they've got forty thousand members called White People Doing Something. I don't know if how many people have even heard of that. <laughs> you don't have to be white to be a member. I'm a member. Uh, but these people, they're great. They they have Facebook lives where they talk about issues. People pose questions like they might say hey you know this just happened in the workplace i don't know what to say everybody kind of chimes in and and gives suggestion it's a very positive community and what i like about it is that even though it has that title it's really about everybody coming together mm -hmm. because we're all we all have a role to play and that's what i tell people even if you feel like oh i'm afraid to say the wrong thing i don't know what to say it's what's in your heart that really counts if you really mm -hmm. want to to make a difference, you can. And it's okay to reach out and say, I don't know how to start, but I want to start. So can somebody give me some, some ad advice or, or a direction? Music and Ideas, this is KBCS, a broadcasting service of Bellevue College. Careers start here. BC's Bachelor of Applied Science in Information Systems and Technology provides a broad base of theoretical and technical knowledge, as well as specialized knowledge in one of several concentrations. Find out more at bellevuecollege.edu. Thanks for joining us for that webinar in partnership with the NAACP Snohomish chapter on microaggressions, what they are and their impact on people of diverse backgrounds. KBCS contributor Kevin Henry hosted that event. Guests were mental health counselors Antonia Ramos and Michael Swan. 
Thanks for tuning into The Grid this morning on 91.3 KBCS Community Radio. Check us out at kbcs.fm or subscribe to our podcast wherever you pick them up. Logic on Men, Lucy Borginski, Ruth Bly, Jesse Callahan, Laura Flores, Kevin Henry, Gohol Gugi, Mari McMiniman, and Witter Sessions are news producers. Some of the music on The Grid is by Logic on Men. I'm your host, Yuko Kodama. Up next is Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman on 91.3 KBCS Music and Ideas. Mm-hmm.